We are continuing in our series this fall on conversations with Jesus. And in this series, we have been asking the question, what do we learn about Jesus in this particular conversation? This morning, we're looking at the conversation Jesus has, we find in John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. Before we read it, uh, let's notice, as you look that up in your pew Bible, if someone has the page number in your pew, let me know. 1072 in your Bible in your pew there. Uh, and if you read it in your pew Bible, you'll see this, or your Bible probably has a footnote or places it in brackets, or somehow lets us know that this passage is not found in our most ancient manuscripts. None of our most ancient and reliable manuscripts of the New Testament have this passage in it. And as a result, there's some question as to whether it was written by John and, and if it belongs in the Bible at all. Bruce Metzger, the great scholar on the text of the New Testament, concludes that the evidence suggests that it is not originally written by John, but that it, quote, has all the earmarks of historical veracity. He believes that it was part of the oral tradition that eventually was accepted as a valid part of the gospel canon. In other words, as we read this passage, we together with the church over the past 2,000 years believe that it rings true to who Jesus is. It indeed is the word of God. Let us then listen to that word of God found in John chapter 8. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are actually a couple of conversations in this text. Jesus has a conversation with the accusers, the ones bringing the charge against this woman. And he has a conversation with the woman who who is caught in adultery. But I want to suggest that there is one question that underlies both conversations. That question is one that we are still asking today. That question is, how do we make people, how do we make society righteous? How do we make people do the right thing? It's a question being asked by both sides of our polarized society. Those on the left are asking, how do we make people be anti-racist? Those on the right are asking, how do we make people not abort unborn babies? We are told in verse 6 of our text that they bring this woman to Jesus as a trap. It's a trap because they knew as we know, that there are only two 
possible answers to this question they're asking of Jesus. And either way he answered would get him in trouble. Either he would uphold the scriptures and say she should be stoned and thereby get in trouble with the Romans because only Rome had the authority to execute someone. Or if he said she should not be stoned, then he would be soft on sin and get in trouble with the religious authorities because he did not uphold the sanctity of marriage. Jesus had two choices to this question of how to get society to do the right thing, to be righteous. Either strong and clear consequences for bad choices, that is, stone the woman, or a permissive lack of consequences. Stone her or let her get away with it. Which one is it, Jesus? That's the question being asked of him. Now, if you are an NBA basketball fan, you have probably heard about the controversy about, around Duke's own Kyrie Irving. Kyrie is a very good basketball player, but he's in trouble because he posted on social media a recommendation of an anti-Semitic movie that denies the Holocaust of World War II. And the NBA cannot tolerate this. But Kyrie is a very, very good basketball player. The NBA wants Kyrie to do the right thing. Now, if he wasn't so good, I think it would be easy, right? No anti-Semite should be allowed to play in the NBA. His team would cut him, and no other team would want the headache of being accused of being anti-Semitic, and he wouldn't play until perhaps he clearly repented. But did I mention he was a very, very good basketball player? So his team did suspend him for five games without pay. It's not quite stoning, right? But the hope is that this punishment will get Kyrie to do the right thing, to, to be righteous. His latest post on social media makes it look like it might be working. Maybe. This woman before Jesus did not have the same status or power of Kyrie Irving. She had no power. She was expendable. There would be no outcry if she were stoned. Let's acknowledge that there are a couple of problems with how this woman is brought before Jesus. The accusers tell us that she was caught in the act of adultery. If she was caught in the act, then where is the man? In verse 5, they tell us that the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Actually, the law of Moses commands to stone both parties, the man and the woman. Where is the man? Why is he not brought before Jesus? And the fact that they bring only the woman and their language, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women, right, implies that she alone was held responsible for the adultery, that the woman who had no power, that she was guilty, and the man who had no responsibility was not. And so they bring her before Jesus. And we are left to our imaginations to picture this scene, right, if she was caught in the act, was she standing before Jesus wrapped in a bedsheet? But what is clear is that she is caught up in shame, accused, standing before Jesus. Teacher, what do you say? Do you take a stand for the sanctity of marriage and marriage vows, or do you show mercy and promote sexual promiscuity? What do you say, teacher? Rabbi? Well, Jesus does this curious thing, right? We are told in verse 6 that he bends down and begins to write 
in the dirt on the ground with his finger. We're not told what he writes. Some of the early church fathers suggested perhaps he was writing out the sins of those who were her accusers. We don't know. Our text doesn't say. For me, and this is one of the arguments for this text, authenticity, historicity, if you're making a story up, wouldn't you tell us what he was writing? Right? But apparently, what was written was not important enough to, for us to be told. Perhaps he was just doodling and not writing any words at all. But the fact that he writes is important. We are told that he does it twice, before and after his response. Why does Jesus write on the ground? And there are several possible reasons that are suggested. Perhaps he's just letting the crowd vent their anger, letting everybody just sort of calm down a moment as he takes a pause. Or perhaps he's taking his time in order not to dignify the question with too prompt or too defensive of a response. Or perhaps he is drawing the crowd's attention, their accusing looks from the woman to what Jesus is doing. What is Jesus doing? Writing in the ground. They stop looking at her and look at him. And perhaps one suggestion, Jesus was fully human, right? Perhaps Jesus needed a moment to collect his own thoughts. What do I, how do I answer this question? And so he paused and wrote something on the ground. We don't know why, but during that time, as they continue to pressure him, he does come up with a response. And what do we learn about Jesus in this conversation? Something we have learned over and over again. <laughs> Jesus is brilliant, right? Over and over, we see Jesus being forced to answer a question. Which will it be, A or B? And over and over again, Jesus says no. He refuses to be defined by our binary assumptions, by our seeing everything as this or that. Either you stone the woman or you don't care about the sanctity of marriage. Which is it, teacher? And Jesus, in his brilliance, comes up with a third response. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It is brilliant, right? It avoids saying adultery doesn't matter. It avoids calling for her death. It puts it back on the accusers and they are forced to examine themselves and not examine her and to make a decision. It is brilliant. It is so brilliant that the world has copied it in its brilliance. And we see people choosing this third way all the time today. We've come up with a name for it. We call it whataboutism, right? When Jesus is confronted with the sinfulness of this woman, he responds with a subtle version of what aboutism? Have you heard about what aboutism? That was kind of a sermon title. What about what aboutism would have been the sermon title? I thought it was really catchy, but um, <laughs> uh, I liked it a lot. But uh, you guys don't have to. But that's all right. Uh, <laughs> this what aboutism is uh, a technique that we see happening in the world today. Wikipedia defines it as an article on Wikipedia, so it's, it's real. Uh, <laughs> Wikipedia defines it as a procedure in which a critical question or argument is not answered, but it's not answered, but with a critical counter question which expresses a counter accusation. For example, let's say you were to accuse me of being idolatrous in my devotion to the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? 
My whataboutism response would be, oh, yeah? Well, what about your devotion to Duke basketball? At least I don't worship a blue devil, right? <laughs> so I did not respond to your accusation to me other than by saying, well, what about what's wrong with you or someone else, right? It's classic. We see this happen in our politics today all the time. And unfortunately, I think this is how this passage, unfortunately, unfortunately, is oftentimes interpreted today. Since none of us are without sin, then none of us can accuse any other person of anything. And we end up with each person doing what is right in their own eyes. Because who am I to judge? Let me return to our initial question. How do we make people righteous? How do we make them do the right thing? Do we do it by stoning the offenders? This option feels right, right? It takes sin seriously. There's the logic of people suffering the consequences of their actions. But it has never worked. It did not work for Israel in the Old Testament. It doesn't work today. No matter how much we threaten with stricter penalties, people continue to do drugs, to murder each other, to refuse to be anti-racist. And of course, moral laxity, on the other hand, has never worked. And what about ism? Is just a means to maintain the status quo, to make it so I don't have to change. It is a masterful means of deflecting any accusation or call to do what is right. It says, don't look at me, look at them. The response of whataboutism does not produce righteousness, but the response of Jesus does. I want to conclude by looking at three components of the response of Jesus and then to ask the question, how we can make this Jesus, this Jesus known in our world today. First, the response of Jesus upholds the dignity of people. That is what Jesus is doing when he is writing in the dirt. He is deflecting the attention away from the woman and onto himself. That is what Jesus is doing when he asks her questions. He gives her the dignity to ask her a question and ask her to respond. She is a person and is to be treated as such. But notice, too, that Jesus treats his accusers with dignity as well. He says to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And this is a moment of confrontation, right? He's asking them a question, and how are they going to respond? But once again, Jesus kneels at that moment and starts writing in the dirt. He takes the attention off the accusers who have just been asked to examine themselves, takes the attention off of them and puts it back on him doing whatever he's doing, writing in the dirt. He takes the attention off them, gives them the dignity to be able to respond and consider this and indeed to walk away. As opposed to what I would want to do, what we are all tempted to do, as opposed to pointing them out in shame, right? As opposed to naming each one of their sins. Let me tell you what your sins are and why you should not throw that stone. Why you are a shameful person right? That's what we want to do. But there is respect for the dignity of each person, the woman, the Pharisees. It doesn't matter. Secondly, the response of Jesus includes no condemnation. There was one person in the scene who could throw the first stone. There was one who was indeed without sin. He was one with whom we could not find a whataboutism. There'd be no what about you, Jesus. He is the judge before whom all of us must stand. 
and he has had every right to condemn. But instead he says, neither do I condemn you. It is the great message of the gospel. It is Paul's great conclusion that we read in Romans 8 earlier. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the message of John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come to condemn. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only person who has a right to condemn you chooses not to. He chooses to set you free from condemnation and instead to save you. Jesus' response to treat each person with dignity, to set people free from their fear of condemnation. And thirdly, he calls us to be transformed. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. What about-ism is about protecting yourself from change. It is deflecting. Jesus does not call out the sins of the accuser so that he or the woman does not have to change. He's not deflecting them so that she can say the same. He calls them out so that they might be saved. And he calls her to change, to go and sin no more. Why? Because he loves her. Because he loves us. He treats us with dignity, rescuing us from shame. He saves us from condemnation so that we might repent and live different lives. He loves us too much to leave us the same. Finally, this morning, how can we make this Jesus known? How can we be a church that reflects the, the glory of the response of Jesus to this woman and to the, these Pharisees? And we do this as a congregation by upholding the dignity of every person. No matter what their sin, no matter what shame they carry, we honor them, we protect their dignity. And we do that by confessing our own sin which is what we do every week. We see each other kneel. We do that by not giving into the thought that those who disagree with us are idiots or fools or worse. They are still people loved by God whom Jesus treats with dignity, and we do too. We do this by refusing to condemn anyone. We do not say that your sin is okay, whatever it is. Adultery was not okay to Jesus. but We, we refuse to condemn and then we invite people into transformation. We looked at this passage in our staff meeting this week, and one of our staff asked the question, how is this woman integrated back into community? What happens to her next? Where, where does she go after this? Can she go back to her husband? Is she left alone? What happens? And we don't know, right? But I know what fits. After Jesus says, go and sin no more, in my movie version of this, right, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Susanna, Joanna, all those women who followed Jesus gathered around her and said, hey, come, let us take care of you. They, she didn't have anything to wear. They got her something to wear. They welcomed her. They cared for her, all that she needed in that moment. They reminded her. Jesus was serious when he said he didn't condemn you. When she couldn't believe that was true, then they said, no, he meant it. It really is true. And they said to her, hey, we've done some awful things too. And he didn't condemn us either, 
right? That's who we are called to be. That church that gathers around those who, for whatever reason, know their shame, have a hard time believing they're not condemned, but who have heard the truth about, from Jesus. They are people of dignity, of worth, not condemned, and called to be different. That's who we are. That's who God has called us to be. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we indeed might be a church that makes you known. You and your brilliance, in your mercy, in your grace, and in your transforming power. Lord, we pray that we would be a, a body of people who have stories to tell of how we have been transformed through our encounter with you, with one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.